You'll have your Bibles open to uh, Philippians chapter 2. And this morning we're looking at, looking at joy in humility. Now I want you to imagine that you're promised something wonderful. Maybe it's a holiday of a lifetime. Maybe it's your dream home. Or it's wealth beyond your wildest dreams. But in order to attain this promise, there is something you need to accomplish. And it's something very difficult. For example, you're told to race against a Formula One car and you're only allowed to ride on a bike, which also happens to have two flat tires. And if you manage to win that race, then you're allowed to complete the next part of the mission. And you're supposed to climb to the summit of Mount Everest carrying an elephant on your back. And once you've achieved those things, then your promise will be fulfilled. The holiday, the dream home, the riches will be yours. Well, it's not only impossible, but it feels completely stupid even trying to attempt those things. The promise is totally useless because it's totally out of reach. What am I saying all this for? Well, there's a pattern in the Bible where God makes a huge, wonderful promise to us of what will happen in the future. He then tells us what we must do in order to attain that promise. And it's often seemingly impossible. Whereas there is no way for us to complete the tasks I just mentioned. And the, the Bible doesn't promise those things, holidays and wealth and our dream home. But the Bible always does tell us one thing. It tells us why we will be able to do the things that God has asked of us. But what happens is we take those commands that God has given us out of context. And if we do that, we'll be left feeling totally hopeless. Whereas in reality, God doesn't leave us on our own. So what about here in this letter here? Well, if you remember last time, we looked at Christ's humility and how he was God, but he didn't consider that a thing to be acquainted with and came into this world as a servant who died a most excruciating death. But that led to his exaltation, that he was crowned the king of heaven and that every knee and every person will eventually worship him. And God's promise, which we can imply from these verses, and which we can find in the rest of the Bible, is that whoever humbles himself, like Christ, will be exalted. Jesus said this, But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, through humility, through acknowledging our sin and our need for forgiveness, by dying to self daily and coming to Jesus, you will find eternal life. So in order to live forever with Jesus, which we, I hope we all want, this is what we must do. Here it comes. Here's the command. Look at Philippians 2 and verses 3 to 5. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. 
Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. More difficult than racing Lewis Hamilton on a broken down bike, more difficult than climbing Mount Everest, is living like Jesus lived. How on earth are we supposed to do this? Well, remember, the Bible always tells us how it is possible. And the good news is, is that we don't do this in and of ourselves. We have God's power. We are equipped to live for God, by God. So the first thing I want to do this morning is to draw your attention to these commands and the corresponding reassurances that Paul gives us of how we will be able to do them. In this passage that we just read, there are three occasions where we're told what God wants from us in our lives. But never behind, never far behind that is how he's going to equip us to do it. So first of all, the first command is there in verse 12. And it tells us to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I'm always very wary and scared of any verses that tells me to work out. Um, but I will explain what that means. Now, this doesn't mean earn your own salvation. It doesn't mean work hard enough in order to impress God. And this is where the true biblical faith has been totally muddled by Roman Catholicism. We cannot win God's favour through our good deeds. Let me say that again. We cannot win God's favour through our own good deeds. So what does this verse mean? Well, it's in the same spirit as chapter 1 and verse 27, if you want to flick back to that, where Paul tells the church to live lives worthy of the gospel. And it's not dissimilar to what we read in the book of James a bit later on in the Bible, when he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works you see our good works do not save us but we are saved in order to do good works so what is the outworking of your faith are you bearing fruit do your outer actions reflect what has gone on inside are you just a sunday christian or does every aspect of your life reflect what has happened to you and Paul goes on to say that the Christian life is to be done in, in fear and in trembling. The Bible often speaks about how we ought to live in fear of God. Understand that a Christian fear is not hopeless dread. Uh, a man called Mike Reeves has written a very helpful book on the subject. and This is what he says. To faithfully tremble is to be overwhelmed by his goodness and majesty and holiness and grace and righteousness by all that God is. The biblical theme of the fear of God helps us to see the sort of love toward God that is fitting. It shows us that God does not want passionless performance or a vague preference for him. He is not a truth to be known unaffectedly or a good to be received listlessly. Seen clearly, the dazzling beauty and splendor of God must cause our hearts to quake. And he's right, isn't he? 
If God were not totally overwhelming, would he be worthy of our praise? If we were able to come across God and meet God, and if we were able to come out of that and shrug our shoulders, or to be indifferent to the God who claims to be all-powerful, who not only created and sustains the universe, who is perfect in every way, who judges fairly and justly, and to go, what kind of God would he be? We must work our faith out in fear and in trembling. So that's the first command, but we see how we're to do it in verse 13. This is the amazing thing. God works in you for his good pleasure. This is the amazing thing. This very same God is at work in you. So you're, you're working out your salvation, you're living out the Christian life, but it's God working through you. God is enabling you. God is strengthening you allowing you to be able to live like this. Why? Well, get this. It makes God happy. That's what he longs to see. He enjoys seeing the change in you. He finds it wonderful when you act humbly. As it says in the book of Micah, mankind, he has told each of you what is good and what is, it is the Lord requires of you to act justly, to love faithfulness, and to walk humbly with your God. And he gives us the spirit in order that we may accomplish these things. So then, we're, that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to see these commands. We're going to see hand in hand how God helps us. Secondly, we see this command. Do all things without grumbling and complaining in verse 14. In one of the places that I worked before I worked here, uh, we used to have a 20-minute break. And uh, there were some days, I would say some, I would say most days, where we had one colleague who spent the whole time grumbling and complaining. And uh, it, was, it, it was a sight to see because at the start of the 20 minutes, everyone would be there for the start of the rant. But by the end, everyone had slowly filtered out and you, I was often left in there being the last one to listen <laughs> to this miserable, uh, draining kind of conversation and it was it was hard to hear and we find it unbearable when other people do it don't we but how often are we found listing things that have gone wrong with our lives shaking our fist at the sky or muttering under our breaths we're grumblers by nature aren't we well as as believers the bible calls us to be different to be set apart Whenever we grumble or complain, whenever we say, it's not fair, I hate the way things are, it's rubbish, we're doing what the rest of the world does. And we're showing dissatisfaction with how God has done things. We're not showing humility. In fact, we're saying, if I was God, things would be different around here. Things would be far better if I was in control. So let us... Uh, be patient and be humble and accept our circumstances, knowing that God knows far better than us. And when things do feel utterly hopeless, let's take our frustrations and our confusions to God in prayer rather than muttering and complaining to others who can't do anything to help our problems, can they? 
And the next verse tells us how we can do this and why we ought to do this. Uh, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. It's because we're children of God. And we've been saved by God in order to be like him. He doesn't just save us. He adopts us. He cherishes us and keeps us. And that's how we're able to do this. That's how we're able to be blameless and innocent through being made more like Christ, the perfect older brother. We know that we can take any of our struggles, any of our worries to God, knowing that he cares for us in the same way as we care for our dear children. More so than we care for our dear children. And when we live like this, when we live in humility and patience and thankfulness, we will shine like stars. We will stand out. People will want to know why we're different. And we won't be able to say that it's anything of us because it will point them to Christ. The third command is there in verse 16. And it says, hold fast to the word of life. The command was to, to treasure and to cling to the message that Paul had given them. The good news which they had heard, some of them at least, over the past 10 years. And not to, to veer to the right or to the left, but to live in obedience to what they had first heard. To, to run the race. But the words used in this context also speaks of holding something forth. That means how we share the good news. And the two go hand in hand, don't they? Because if uh, something is incredibly important to us, naturally we want to tell others about it. If it's the most important thing in your life, then it will become news that you want to tell people about. And the, 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 the third how and the third uh, why we ought to do this command is there in verse 16. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run and labor in vain. And motivation is important, isn't it, when we're asked to do something. Imagine you're a, a weary traveler on a, a long and treacherous hike up a mountain with each step fatigue, uh, weighs heavy and the path seems endless. But suddenly you catch a glimpse of this radiant light shining through the darkness. It's a beacon of hope reminding you of your ultimate destination, the, the peak. You see, without motivation, we can't keep going. I'm not sure if you saw it on the news this week, but um, Adam Peaty, um, the Olympic swimmer, he's been in the news recently because uh, he has taken a break from the sport because he just completely lacks motivation. He can't compete without that motivation. So what was going to drive the Philippians? Now, Paul urged them to hold fast for a very good reason. They knew that if they kept on going, when Christ came again, that Paul's work would not be in vain. It would not have been wasted. It would have been worth it. They knew that their actions weren't going to be forgotten, but that they would echo into eternity and that the God who had promised to start a good work in them would bring it to completion. There is no way he would abandon them as they held fast to the word of life. 
So there you go. There you have three commands and three encouragements, three reasons why the Philippians and you as Christians today are able to complete these tasks. And that's the pattern that you see throughout. And hopefully, once you've seen that, that pattern in this passage, you'll begin to see it in other parts of the Bible too. We're never given commands in Scripture with the expectation that we can do it in our own strength. As Paul will go on to say in chapter 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And as we move to the second half of this passage, I want to look at three case studies in humility. Three case studies in humility. Uh, the church, of course, was going to learn uh, what humility was as they read Paul's letter. And some theology is taught, isn't it? But lots of theology in our lives is caught. It's observed in the lives of others. There are older Christians, more mature Christians, that you keep an eye on, that you watch and you learn from. How they welcome people into their homes, how they speak to their husband or wife, how they react when someone cuts in front of them when they're driving, how they treat their children when they misbehave, how they approach difficult situations. And there may be people that are looking at the way you live. So what are they picking up from your life and what are you picking up from others? And so in regards to humility, Paul's already described the ultimate example of humility. He's described the Lord Jesus Christ in verses one to nine. But there is a family likeness. What is seen in Christ is also seen in his followers. Uh, so let's see three people who showcase this humility. And the first one is seen in the life of Paul. Paul was a, a constant pointer through the way in which he lived. He was a pointer to Christ. He was selfless and was always putting the needs of others before himself. And his great desire was not to be famous, but was to preach Christ crucified, to tell others about the good news. And he stopped at nothing in order to see this happen. And he put himself in harm's way on more than one occasion. Now, if you had set out with a specific purpose, at what point would you have given up? Maybe if you'd been arrested for doing this thing, or maybe if you'd been put in prison. Well, uh, Paul was put in prison over and over again. He was tortured and beaten and whipped, and he was uh, had thrown, uh, stones thrown at him, and he was shipwrecked three times, and he spent a day at night in the cold sea, and he was in continual danger from rivers and robbers and he was in danger from the people that he lived with and he was also in danger from people from outside of where he lived and he was weary and he was in pain and he didn't have any clothes and he had sleepless nights these are all things that he mentions and yet at no point did he say oh this is too much he didn't think maybe god wants me to stop now he didn't see it as a closed door you see, Paul was willing to imitate the incarnation. He had the same mind as Christ, who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. No, Paul kept on going through. Uh, he kept going and was continually concerned with the health of the churches. He was echoing Christ, who, when things were at their hardest point, said, not my will be done, but yours. And Paul gives a wonderful image of what humility looks like. 
and his willingness to sacrifice everything for the Philippians. He says in verse 17, yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. In the Old Testament, there was this unique sacrificial offering. While some of the offerings, uh, there were parts of it withheld and kept behind uh, for the priests. But there was a thing called the drink offering and none of it was held back. You had a, uh, some wine and you would pour the whole thing on the fire as a, uh, it would kind of make this amazing smell and, and, um, and you'd see it kind of being raised up to the, to the sky and it was a picture uh, for the people to see of the things, um, the sacrifices that we make being a, a fragrant aroma and sacrifice to the Lord. And Paul is saying here, I've held nothing back. I've been poured out like a drink offering. Everything's been given. Everything's been sacrificed. And it's been done willingly as an offering to God. In the same way, Jesus gave it all in his life and death. Uh, Paul was following Christ who held nothing back. We follow Christ's example because we know he did this all for us. We are comforted to know that nothing that we give up will truly be lost. Remember when Peter said, we've left everything to follow you. And maybe that's how you feel this morning. I've left everything to be a follower of Jesus. I've given up family members. I've given up friends. I've given up a job. I've given up living in a, in a wonderful home. I, I've given up so much. This is what Jesus says. Truly, I tell you, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me. And the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. He says, you're going to get it all back and more. All the things that this world holds dear, they will lose it all because they see that as number one. You, my children, have seen me as number one. And so you'll gain me and everything else. Follow the kingdom, he says, and everything else shall be added. Many who are first will be last and the last will be first. We may lose everything. You may spend every penny that you have. Use every morsel of energy that you, you possibly have. You could dedicate every minute of your time in order to serve Christ. But it will all be worth it because we will spend the rest of eternity with Christ. So that's the first example in these verses. But we also see it in Timothy. We see humility in the life of Timothy as well. Uh, a reporter once asked the, um, the composer, the, the conductor, Leonard Bernstein, what was the most difficult instrument to play? And he's a, an expert, was an expert in all uh, fields of music. And someone thought they were to have insight on this, and he did. Uh, what's the most difficult instrument to play in the orchestra? And he replied straight away. He said, second fiddle. I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm or second French horn 
We're second flute. Now that's a problem. Yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. And it must have been hard for Timothy. It was never, it's Timothy and Paul. It was always Paul and Timothy. Someone less gracious and more concerned about their reputation would have found living in someone else's shadow suffocating. Timothy thrived. You see, when Christ is the one conducting the orchestra, it doesn't matter which instrument that we play, we all make a sweet symphony for him. So how do you feel about being unnoticed? About working for the praise of God rather than man? Timothy didn't mind. Timothy was someone who Paul cherished because of his willingness to serve. He says there in verse 20, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Paul knew how rare this quality was. There's no one like him, he says. And what makes him so unique? Paul explains, for all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now you think that that sentence would read, for all seek their own, not the things of others. He says, all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Because you see, in caring for the needs of others, we are caring for Christ. That's one way we can honour and glorify Jesus when we serve and bless others with our time, and with our energy, and with our resources. It shows us what we think of Christ. This is what Jesus said about what will happen when he comes again. I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the people will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. So how we treat other people made in God's image is a reflection of what we think of Christ. And Paul says that Timothy has proven character in there, there in verse 22. That means he's been tested. There have been trials in which he's faced. And he's come out the other side. And Paul can say confidently that he's going to stick with him. He's consistently shown faithfulness. We know that Timothy had faced persecution. We know that he faced personal attacks. We know that he faced ill health. But he persevered through the Spirit's help. There in verse 22, Paul says, as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. Timothy had the humility to serve like a son, learning all the time. The Philippians saw a wonderful example of humility in Timothy, someone who cared for their needs above his own, someone who had proven character time and time again. So we've seen it in Paul, we've seen it in Timothy, and we'll see it in Epaphroditus. He's the one who delivered the original manuscript of this letter to the church in Philippi. The church in Philippi sent, uh, they wanted to send Paul a sort of care package 
And so they gathered up supplies and money and, uh, and the things that, that Paul needed, and they gave it to a man called Epaphroditus from within the church and sent him on his way to, to visit Paul. And Paul uses four words to describe the humility that Epaphroditus had. He calls him a brother, calls him a worker, he calls him a soldier, and he calls him a messenger. The fact that he was a brother showed that he was faithful. There was a loyalty and a closeness to Paul. The fact that he was a worker showed that he was determined and he was willing to do the hard yards. He was willing to labor alongside Paul. The fact that he was a soldier showed that he was resilient, that he was a warrior battling against the devil's attacks using the armor of God and the sword of the Spirit. And a messenger because his aim was to tell people about Jesus. He wasn't interested in his own name. And in fact, his own name was a, a, a name that he was named after a, a Roman god. And yet he lived in order to tell others about Jesus. He was saved from the shackles of paganism and he came to share the good news about Jesus. It wasn't his message. It was a message he was carrying. The message that he, Timothy and Paul, all preached. He was a brother, a worker, a soldier, a messenger. Those are all wonderful words to have on your CV, aren't they? I wonder if someone was to describe me, if they were to describe you, what, what would they say about you? Would it be something to do with your humble posture? And there's something here, a, a particular moment in Epaphroditus' life which showed his humility. It's there in verse 26. It says, since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Now, Epaphroditus had been sent by the Philippians, but while he was away, he'd been uh, taken ill. He was seriously ill. Now, if you're anything like me, and I hope you're not, illness is a time to, to milk the attention, to milk the pity and the care that you receive by those around you. And uh, there's a running joke in our family, if everyone else is ill in the family, if cat, especially if cat's ill, I'm not very good at looking after her. Um, I'm usually starting to think that I'm coming under the same symptoms. I start thinking, oh, I think I'm coming down with something as well, actually. Um, and then I have a lie down and cat ends up looking after me as well. Um, but not Epaphroditus. Knowing that the Philippians cared for him and would be worried about his health, he became distressed about how they would feel about him being sick. Isn't that amazing? That is Christ-like living, isn't it? It's looking away from self, not being someone who pities self, but someone who is concerned about others. That is a wonderful advert for Jesus, isn't it? Who was Jesus concerned about when he was dying? It was others, wasn't it? He washed the feet of the disciples on the night he was betrayed. He prayed for the disciples and for other believers. When he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he spoke to John and he made careful provisions for his own mother while he was dying. He spoke to the thief on the cross and made sure that that man knew the offer of eternal life was open to him. That is who Jesus was, caring for others. And that was what Epaphroditus was living out. So can you live humbly? On your own, you can't. Do you want to live humbly? 
You may think to yourself, well, would that make things harder? Won't it make life more difficult and more boring? In fact, the very opposite is true. It gives us great freedom. We like to think of ourselves as the centre of the universe. Imagine how exhausting it is being at the centre of the universe. A man called Gavin Altman has written an excellent book on humility. And this is what he says. Being a big deal is a burden. Humility, in contrast, means you don't interpret everything in relation to yourself. And you don't need to. It is the death of the narrow, suffocating filter of self-referentiality. Isn't that wonderful? When you're thinking of only about Jesus and pleasing him and pleasing others, then you don't have time to be suffocated by uh, always thinking about yourself. That's what I want to finish on this morning, not to be intimidated by humility or to do it out of a sense of duty. That misses the whole point of it, but to be liberated by it, to find great joy in it, to realize that to be a child of God, to live for him in his strength is the best possible way of living. You're not the main character in the story. And that's a good thing. So be set free by being a faithful worker. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling so that you might shine like stars. I can't do it on my own. Well, no one's asking you to. God is working in you and he's working through you. Why? For his good pleasure. He loves to see it in your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful news. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is uh, the epitome of humility. And we thank you that he is working in us and through us in order to make us more like him and in order to, to build up the kingdom. Uh, Lord, we just pray uh, for your forgiveness for all the times where we have lacked humility and grace this week. And we just pray that you would help us not to do these things in our own strength, but to rely completely on the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you help us? Amen. We're going to sing of what it means to be people of the risen King now, and then Glyn is going to lead our time in communion. Thank you.